Hopefully, your 2022 is off to a good start. We're two days in. Uh, it's good to see you here this morning. Today, I know many people are traveling. Uh, my family may be in a similar situation to your family or your friends. They are stuck somewhere else right now. Um, my wife, Andy, and our daughter, Lizzie, uh, took a trip with me early in December. We went back to Texas so that Lizzie could meet a lot of her family members since she was adopted earlier in 2021. And uh, I came back on the 21st so that I could be with you for the Christmas Eve service. And the girls were supposed to get back on the 28th, but they got stuck in Raleigh-Durham. They had an extra leg of the trip in North Carolina where some of Andy's family lives. And they were there for four days. Uh, they had flights canceled about twice a day in that period of time until they finally sort of gave up and realized that they were not going to be able to sit together on an airplane and make it back. And so they flew back to Texas to stay with Andy's mom for another week. And God willing, they'll be here on Thursday. So uh, 17 days is the longest that I've been without my family before. It's pretty weird. We have a puppy at home, so I'm busy, uh, very busy. And we have a new campus to help uh, bring online. And so I'm also busy in that way. Uh, but I definitely miss my family. And uh, just the icing on the cake, I think you guys will get a kick out of this. Uh, I was on the phone with Andy one day. Uh, the fourth day that they were in North Carolina stuck, Andy got the 24-hour flu. Because uh, if you know Andy, when it rains, it pours. That's just the way it goes for her. She kind of has uh, ill fortune when in those areas. On top of that, uh, she has a cousin who lives close by who came and picked up Lizzie to get Lizzie out of the hotel room. Because when you have the flu, you don't really want to be parenting a young kid at the same time. And just as Lizzie left and Andy thought she was going to finally be able to rest for a few hours of quiet. I'm on the phone with her. We were just supposed to talk for a minute. And the fire alarm went off in the hotel. I could hear it go off on the phone. And I was like, oh, no. And so she had to go downstairs in her pajamas, trying not to throw up. She's been stuck in the city for four days. Turns out that it actually was a fire that the hotel kitchen caught on fire because the staff were untrained because that's the world we live in today. So anyway, she was fine. The hotel did not burn down, though in some ways it uh, probably wouldn't have been that big of a surprise at that point in the trip for her. But she's safe. They're back uh, with her mom, and they're hanging out. Um, and I want to say thank you uh, to you, those of you who prayed for us, for our family, especially for Lizzie. It's a challenging time, meeting a lot of grown-ups who say that they're your uncles and aunts and grandparents, but you've never met them before, is pretty overwhelming and intimidating as an almost seven-year-old. So thank you for being with us, even though you weren't with us physically, being with us in prayer. And I want to also say thank you to Josh Mangum, our student minister, and to Tyler Wolf, our worship leader, for rightly handling the last two sermons in the Advent series. I think they both did a great job, uh, and, and I always appreciate being able to be gone and not having to worry that the preaching of the word is not handled rightly. And hopefully, those of you who were here on the 24th made it to our Christmas Eve service. It was really fun to me. It's kind of a glimpse of where we're headed down the road to have a big packed out service over at the East Campus. Lots of people I'd never seen before, people who were not previously a part of Muldoon Road Baptist Church and people who don't typically attend here at True North. And so that's an indicator, I think, of things to come. Being some life in that building on that side of town, there's a lot of people looking for hope, looking for Jesus. And I think we're going to find that being in that location is going to really serve our ability to make contact with the community. But now it's the new year. A brand new year, 2022, a year in which we probably have hopes at a global scale, right, that certain things will go away and stay away. I think we've had those hopes for a couple of years. Unfortunately, we're now uh, a year-ish removed from a new president, and that means a new presidential cycle is just around the corner. One of the joys of being an American is we constantly live under the waterfall of the political cycle. We can barely get our breath before more comes thundering down on us. Our kids get older, we get older, our relationships mature, our careers advance. This is the passage of time. 
And when we reach a point like today or yesterday, the beginning of a new year, I ask myself, does it really feel new? Do you feel new in a new year? I certainly don't feel newer. I don't feel any younger than I did two days ago. I don't feel any fresher or more ready for life than I did last week. Yet that's the narrative this time of year. A sense of hope, a sense of renewal, a sense of something new. And if you ask me, though I do tend to lean cynical, those who are close to me will tell you that about me, uh, I think there's an element of false hope in the midst of a new year, especially when it comes down to what you and I might call resolutions. Um, If you are like me and you go out of your way to choose not to consume a lot of social media or not to consume a lot of cable TV, news, commercials, things like that, you still find your life bumping up against things that want to teach you to be self-righteous. Things like vision boards or uh, lots of goals for a new year or a brand new diet plan that's finally going to make a difference where all the other ones didn't. And unfortunately for us, I think, self-improvement has become an industry in the West. Trying to find a way to make me better, 10 or 15 years ago, we would have called that self-help. Now we just call it being a person. Being online is being exposed to people who seem better than you, stronger than you, faster than you, thinner than you, more successful than you. And you automatically begin to lift those peoples up as an image of what you wish you could become. I think one of the tropes of the self-improvement industry is the idea of a New Year's resolution. And I'm not saying everybody who does a New Year's resolution is wrong. I don't think making a commitment to God that's based on his spiritual power in your life is a mistake. But I do think that if our resolutions look like us trying harder to change ourselves, we're probably lying to ourselves. Because we don't have the power to do it. This is the story of the Bible. It's been the story of human history. People have had good ideas for a long time. The reason things have gone wrong is not because people were stupid or uneducated or uncivilized. It's because we don't have the power within ourselves to change ourselves. For you and I, we probably try for the first week of a new year. Maybe your new year looks like the warm glow of the gym lights at 5 a.m. as you pull your car in the parking lot the first Monday of a new year. Or maybe a new year is more positive to you. Maybe you do get excited and a new year brings with it a new car smell or the feeling of opening a new book and hearing the spine crack, anticipation, the possibility of where life may take you next. But for all of us, when we reach December 26, regardless of whether it's in the midst of conversations around a table with loved ones or if it's in the scrolling of our newsfeed on whatever social media we're on, we begin to feel the societal peer pressure to pick something about our lives, something that we don't like something that we would like to fix, and we begin to try to work on it with positive thoughts. I think many of us at least make an attempt at that kind of self-improvement. We choose something, we post about it online, it's our big commitment, we're telling the world, no matter what happens, things are gonna go well. Or we write it down in a journal if we're a little more private, but still there's something about putting it in writing that seems to make it more real for us. We might even Google a Bible verse that seems like it sort of goes along with our resolution so that when we do eventually fail, that sense of failure and guilt can creep even into our spiritual lives. (laughs) It's sort of the masochism of the way that we participate in our own self-help cycles. But why do we fail? We don't fail because we have the wrong ideas. We don't fail because I think we're lying, really, in the sense that our desire is to do right. Where we fail is the lie we tell and believe about our ability to do right. Our intentions may be good. They may even be grounded in God's word, but we fail because our resolutions are exercises in self-righteousness. 
We wouldn't say it this way to ourselves or each other, but when we resolve to lose weight or to gain more friends or make more money or cut ties with bad people or take more chances or take less chances or say yes more or say no more, we are trying to remake ourselves, to recreate ourselves, to do what no person has ever been able to do in human history, to renew our own lives. But if my biggest problem 51 weeks out of the year is that I'm too focused on me, why would I think that doubling down on that strategy between Christmas and the new year is somehow going to fix that problem? Spending even more time thinking about me, spending even more time focused on me, spending even more time working on me. So today is the first Sunday of a brand new year. And frankly, I couldn't care less if you have a resolution or not. I don't really want to talk to you about you. You've been thinking about you enough. Probably even this morning on your way here, most of your thoughts were about you and yourself and your family. Maybe a little bit about what other people think, but not what other people think about other stuff, what other people think about you. That's where our minds naturally go. And I can almost assure you that before your head hits the pillow tonight, your thoughts will return to yourself. Today I want to talk to you about God because I believe that God wants to talk to you about himself. I think that's his hope for us this morning as we enter into a brand new year. If if a cultural idea like that, the rolling over of a calendar, can have any spiritual significance, it has to start with him. It can't begin with you and I. We have nothing to offer. We don't have the tools to fix what's broken. And I think there's a providence of God in our lives personally here at True North in that over a year ago, when we planned to preach the book of Exodus, I think God knew that Sunday, January 2nd, 2022, we would be in Exodus 19, which is where we'll be today, which is a chapter all about God, his character, what he wants, and how he operates. So let's go there now. If you have a copy of God's word, I'd love it if you would turn physically, even if it's a tablet or a cell phone, to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to read the first nine verses and try to capture a little bit of what's going on here in the life of God's people. If you don't have an Exodus scripture journal... You'll need one for about the next six to eight weeks. We're going to finish the book of Exodus relatively quickly. The majority of the second half of Exodus consists of two things. One is God giving his people the law, and the second is him laying out the plans for the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a physical building. You can think of it as a large circus tent, much nicer, much more spiritually significant than that, but set up and torn down in the same way that God's people will carry with them for the 40 years that they're in the desert and the majority of their time of conquest in Canaan before God eventually gives the plans for a permanent building, a temple to David that Solomon, his son, will eventually build. So those two things are going to happen. There's not a ton of application for you and I in the midst of that. They would make a fabulous Bible study. Uh, And so there may be a few supplemental teachings along the way. But the majority of our Sunday mornings will move relatively quickly through these portions of the law so that you know where we're headed. Okay, let's read now from Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim. And they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped there in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped in front of the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain and said this, You will say these things to the house of Jacob, which is the nation of Israel, and you will tell the people of Israel this, quote, You yourselves, this is Yahweh speaking to his people, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And they did. They saw it up close and personal. You've seen how I bore you on eagles' wings. Again, a real and true experience for them, crossing giant bodies of water, having food fall from the heavens, having their enemies swallowed up by the same uh, sea that they could not cross on their own without God's help. He says, now therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice, if you'll keep my covenant with you, then you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. For all of the earth belongs to me, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Yahweh is telling Moses what to go and say to God's people. In verse 7, Moses did that. He came down and called the elders of the people together and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. And all of the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people back to Yahweh. Lots of hiking in Moses' life at this stage. And Yahweh said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. So now he's not just going to descend with his voice. He's going to bring some of his presence with him, which has not happened for God's people before this point. He says, I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So here's a question for you. If you've been with us, if you were here most of or all of 2021, do you remember where God has been taking his people? We know where they left. That's Egypt. That's easy. But do you know what the destination is? Well, we might say the land of promise, right? Canaan, that seems to be where God promised he was going to take Abraham's descendants way back in Genesis 12 before Abraham died and his son died and his son died and then the people moved to Egypt and stayed there for 400 years. That promise is still hanging over God's people unfulfilled. They haven't gone back to the land that they left. However, it seems like there's actually a destination on the way that is at least or maybe even more significant than the land of promise. It's God's mountain. It's the same mountain where Moses met God in Exodus chapter 3, the place where he didn't know God would meet him, but where God knew from the beginning he was going to interact with his people. It's the place where God put his words in Moses' mouth, where he said, I don't care if you stutter or not, I'm sending you back to the people you ran from. And now God's people have arrived, not just in the foothills of this mountain, but at the base of the mountain itself. I believe that God brings them to Sinai because they are not ready for Canaan yet. It's easy for you and I to forget the world that these young Israelite people, and when I say young, I mean that they are a new nation. The third new moon, which is the opening of chapter 19, that's three months. It's been 90 days since they left Egypt. They don't have their own culture. They don't have their own societal rules. There's no laws for them to use with each other. All that they've ever known was the domineering oversight and oppression of the Egyptian people. Do you think that that is good and right and shaping in a way that tells you how to have a society? No, you've known people who have abusive parents, right? It breaks you. It messes you up for a long time. In many ways, it encourages and teaches you to begin acting in the same way, even if you hate it at face value. The parenting of God's people has been left up to the Egyptians up to a certain point. That's all they know. If God wants them to look different from the Egyptians, if he wants them to actually be the light that he says that they're meant to be, he's going to have to teach them how to do that. And he probably won't be able to just say it one time. He's probably going to have to slowly, like an apprentice, show them and do it for them and then invite them into that participation so that they actually begin to live differently. The people of God are not yet ready for the big cities of Canaan. They're not ready for all the human philosophies, for the ancient religions of that region, or the humanistic pleasure factories that the Canaanites are famous for. Uncommitted sex, violent entertainment, and self-exaltation. Before God throws his people into that fire, hoping them to be well-equipped enough to actually make a difference in a society like that, he has to get them ready. He has to prepare them. And so before God sends them, first he will speak with them about all of those things and more. 
He'll take his undeveloped people and he will develop them. He will grow them. Israel have, have seen what God can do in the chapters before Exodus 19. This is the first time where God says that they need to actually hear his voice. He's not just going to show, he's going to tell. And in telling, he will teach. And in teaching, he will transform them. That's what Yahweh means in verses 4 and 5 when he says, You yourselves have seen. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice. In other words, you've seen what I can do. The question now for you, Israel, is will you do what I say? Let's see how the people respond. This is verse 10 of Exodus 19. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord then answered to Moses. He said, go to the people and consecrate them. Consecrate them all day today. Consecrate them all day tomorrow. And let them wash their clothes and prepare themselves for the third day. So, a little context here. God is saying, we can't even begin to have this conversation until three days from now because of how filthy you people are. And not just your clothes, but your clothes represent you. They represent who you are inside. They represent what you've been able to do with your life. And right now, they're covered in the filth of your journey. You're not clean. You're not ready. He goes on to say, on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. This has never happened before. And you shall set limits for the people. In other words, you're going to tell them they can't get too close to the bottom of this mountain. You'll say to them, take care not to go up into the mountain or to even touch the edge of it. Why? Because whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot with a bow and arrow. They don't have guns yet. Whether beast or man, he will not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they shall come up to the bottom of the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he consecrated them. So they respond to God's command with obedience. They say yes with their actions. I will do that. I will participate in what probably seems extra and over the top and more than I would have signed up for on my own. They washed their garments. And Moses said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, if I can just give you some context on that, okay? God is not a sexist. What he is saying in nicer words is you need to not have sex for a few days. You need to curb and control and manage all of your appetites, and you need to not be exchanging the bodily fluids and even sometimes the blood that happens in intercourse. This is about cleanliness and preparation for me. So focus all of yourself on me, even the parts of your life that maybe don't seem like they're my business. So God gets specific to help his people do the right thing. I have two broad concepts that I want to help you understand today that are going to help us as we walk through the end of the book of Exodus. Two truths about God's character and things that you need to know about him in the new year. The first is this. Yahweh is intentionally relational. If you have a scripture journal or if you take notes in some other form, I would write this down. And I would write it in a way where you can come back to it as we read and walk through the following chapters. If we lose our grip on the fact that God wants a relationship, I'll tell you what we'll do with these laws we will turn them into baseball bats and we will beat each other with them. We will. It's what people have done forever. It's what God's people are going to do in just a few chapters. They're going to go after one another with these laws, forgetting that they are about personal transformation that leads to connection with the divine. That's God's intention. He's teaching us to do right that we might flourish and grow and have a good life, not that we might better equip ourselves to attack people who are wrong. God has always been the judge and arbiter. He will handle who is right and who is wrong. Yahweh is intentionally relational. He relates to us on purpose because he wants to do that. You and I have a Bible, right? You're probably holding one in your hands. You're used to the concept, if you are a person who owns a Bible, that God wants to speak into your life. But that's a novel concept in Exodus 19. 
the gods of Egypt did not speak into anybody's life. The Pharaoh would occasionally, but when he spoke, it only made his life better. It made him richer. It gave him more power. It gave him more access to people and things that he wanted. There is no paradigm in the minds of early Israel for a God who wants to actually help. To, to be about them just a little bit. Not that he surrenders his glory or surrenders his own worship, but there's an element of him being loving that actually advances people. It gets them to a better place than they could go on their own. This is not the case with any other God in any system that Israel's been exposed to so far. In a way, this assembly at the foot of Mount Sinai is a precursor to what you and I are doing in here right now. You drove here this morning because you believe God's words in verse 9. That he's coming, that the people will hear when he speaks, and that they will believe. Isn't that what we do when we gather? We believe that we will hear God's word spoken. We come expecting it to change us. That God doesn't just talk because it's good for him to talk, because he's a narcissist, or he doesn't have any friends. God talks because when we listen to his words, we are changed. Our lives get better. That is what Israel are participating in here. We believe that God comes to us. We believe that he speaks to us. We believe that those who gather together to hear his word spoken will believe. Now, we know the people of Israel actually heard the voice of God. We don't know exactly what he and Moses talked about every part of the conversation. We get the Ten Commandments beginning in chapter 20, or what the Hebrew calls the Ten Words of, of Life, of Truth. But we know because of what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4, I won't read it to you, but you can go investigate that later today if you'd like to, that the people could actually physically hear Yahweh's words when he spoke out of the fire in Exodus 19. Again, he's intentionally relational. He could have spoken into Moses' consciousness, right? He could have just implanted words and concepts into Moses' brain that Moses then would carry to the people. But God is on purpose speaking in a way where everybody can hear, where no longer do they have to just trust in the prophet, though they will. He says that they will believe God's prophet forever based on their experience. But more than that, they can hear God for themselves. Verse 19 says that Moses spoke and then that Yahweh answered him. That alone is a miracle that we probably take for granted. That God is not just speaking, but that he's also listening and then he's responding. We call that a conversation. Yahweh's communication means that he wants a relationship with his people. He doesn't just want their blind allegiance. And these laws are not just bumpers at the bowling alley to help advance the ball of their life down to the end. There is an element of growing and loving and compassion that's involved in the way that God speaks and teaches, and we have to keep that flavor with us. We have to let that season the laws that we're going to interact with, or we won't understand what God's heart is after. Let me give you an example of why communication is key in a relationship. I've been married eight and a half years. By God's grace, I'll be married many, many more until one of us goes into the ground is our plan at this point. But I'll ask you a question. Can you guess what one thing has benefited my marriage more than anything else? This is the part where you are allowed to participate if you'd like to. Okay, yeah, that's the right answer. Well, the joke I was going to make is doing the dishes, but it helps a little bit. It's communication, yeah, right? I mean, I know I'm being on the nose here, but let me give you an example of what it looks like when my wife and I don't communicate. Our relationship doesn't end. We just fail to actually function as if we are married. So a few years ago, when Andy and I had only been married maybe two or three years, she took a flight somewhere. It was the first time she'd flown without me. And it's funny because we've joked about this story all week long. I tend to be optimistic, so I like to find a silver lining in things when they go poorly. So a lot of times when we've talked on the phone this week and Andy's just like, could anything else go wrong? I'm like, probably not. And that's a good thing, right? This is the thing we can smile about. 
she's not as optimistic as me. So a while ago, this is the story that I keep telling, try to get her to laugh. Um, I took her to the airport one day. She packed her bags. I wasn't going, she was. We get to the airport, I pull up to drop her off, and I pop the trunk, and then before I can get out, I hear her sort of yell slash say my name from behind the car. And there's a way that Andy can say my name where I know that something very bad has happened. It sounds kind of like this. Phil? Yeah. So I heard that. I felt it in my soul. I felt my heart go into my stomach, and I thought, oh, no, something's not good. So I got out of the car and went back there. What do you think was in the trunk? Nothing. That's right. Yeah. And nothing is not what she packed. She packed a lot of stuff into bags that were not in the trunk. And so we stood there, and she looked at me, and she said, where are my bags? And I'm a really good husband, so I said, probably wherever you left them, uh, which wasn't helpful in the moment. I'm not recommending that you do that. You can learn from my example on how not to be compassionate. Uh, and so here's what we realized. Previously, when we had gone on trips together, I had loaded the bags into the car. Not because my wife is incapable of doing that or because I feel that I have to. I wanted to help her. And also, she gets all the way to the 50-pound limit on every bag that she packs and therefore could use a little bit of upper body help getting it into the trunk. However, there was one time where I packed her bags into the car before she was done with them. Now, to my defense, they were by the door, totally zipped up with stuff sitting on top of them. But in her mind, there was still a toiletry bag that she had to use that morning that she was going to pack. And stay. I get it. I've done the same thing. But I put them in the trunk of the car. I went and got in the car, turned the car on, and sat and just played on my phone until she was ready to leave. Well, she felt like I had maybe kind of abandoned her in the middle of the process or that I was trying to passively, aggressively hurry her up. So I learned from that, that time that I don't take her bags anymore, right? Because that doesn't go very well and she doesn't appreciate that. Well, to her, that wasn't really the issue and she's right, it wasn't really the issue, but I'm black and white that way. So when we got to the airport, we realized we had totally miscommunicated, right? It wasn't her, just her fault because she didn't ask me. It also was sort of my fault because I didn't see if I could help, which is the role that I committed to take on when I married her, when I put this ring on my hand. Now, the end of the story is fun for Andy because she flew to a place with all of her favorite stores and she got to buy some new clothes while she was on vacation because we couldn't get back home and then get to the airport. And once she got home, she had two suitcases full of clean clothes that she could wear for a few weeks, which is its own silver lining. See, this is what I do. My wife doesn't always appreciate this. But for she and I in that moment, though we had not broken the relationship, functionally it was non-existent. That's what I want you to understand. I could have just as easily been an Uber driver for her and I would have done her just as much good. I got her to the airport in one piece, on time, but I didn't help with anything personal. Our lives were not overlapping, they were running parallel. That's very easy to do with your faith. I don't know if you know that or not. Maybe you haven't been a Christian very long. Or maybe you've been a Christian so long with people who haven't done it very well that that's what you're used to. But life with Jesus is not life parallel to Jesus. It's not, Jesus, can you get me to the airport in function? It's, Jesus, do we know each other well enough that we're communicating about each step of this thing? Not just, are you providing for me, but am I engaged with you? Are we talking to one another? Do I know what you love? Do I know what you like? Are there degrees or shades of your character appearing in my life? Or is it all black and white, do, don't, yes, no rules? If we forget that God is intentionally relational, we don't have the equipment on our own to navigate a set of rules like God is about to give his people. And when he demonstrates to Moses that he not only wants to speak to his prophet, which is normal and comes with the territory, but that he also wants his people to hear his voice, that indicates that he wants to relate. He wants to be known. He wants us to know about him. He didn't have to descend onto the mountain in fog and fire. 
He didn't have to make noises like train horns and trumpet blasts to demonstrate to his people how big and loud and strong he can be. God was not posturing in these moments. God was participating in revealing himself in order to connect, in order to relate. He speaks. He tells his people, if you want to prepare yourself for something, prepare yourself for me. And maybe there's even a little bit of a resolution lesson in there for us. If you're going to orient yourself around something in 2022, make it about God. You don't need a resolution that revolves around you in the new year. You need a resolution that revolves around God. You don't need to prepare yourself to give up sugar or to write apologies to all of your exes or whatever other thing you committed to. You need to prepare yourself to know God more. Let's finish the chapter. This is verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and there were lightnings which is its own way of trying to demonstrate to you this is bigger and crazier than any storm you've ever experienced. And a thick cloud came onto the mountain and there was a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Have you ever heard an instrument that was so loud that it scared you? Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand. Remember, this is probably about two million people, a million and a half plus at this point, standing at the base of this mountain Mount Sinai, verse 18, was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, which means it was thick and black and oily. It filled the sky. The smoke of it went up, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai. He touched the top of that mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top and Moses went up. And here's what the Lord said. He said, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and then come up again, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and he told them. Here's the second thing you need to know about God. Yahweh is dangerously holy. He is not safe. It's not safe for these people to be close to him. This is almost like someone interacting with a nuclear reactor. I don't know if you know much about nuclear power, but nuclear reactors have to be encased in feet of concrete. And even then, you have to wear a protective suit the whole time. And even then, you can only come so close before it begins to destroy your person to be in the presence of something that powerful. That's a small physical example of what it means on a spiritual scale to come into direct contact with God. God is not tame. This is why he gives Israel all kinds of steps to take before they can come and stand at the bottom of a mountain that he's at the top of. That's a long way away. I think many of us probably were raised or have even shared with our children illustrations about God the Father or the Son or the Spirit that are too soft. They're too human. In truth, God does not play by our rules. I think the fear of God is often lost on us, and this extends into the way that we pray, the way that we communicate with the God who wants us to communicate with him. Oftentimes, we feel about prayer the same way that we might feel about not calling our mom often enough or leaving the toilet seat up. We go, oh, man, I wish I would have done that. Bummer. I really need to get better about that. I got to remind myself to make that a priority. 
But there is no sense of the holiness of God in the way that we communicate with him. We're not responding like that. We're not preparing ourselves like that. We're not taking him seriously like that. We treat prayer like an obligation, like a secondary part of our relationship with God when the question hanging in the air between us and him is how can there be a relationship where there is no communication? Is what you and I are calling a relationship with God really a relationship? Are we relating? Or, like most people in human history, have we taken his word and dumbed it down into a checklist to follow? Because the God of the Bible, though he is ferociously holy, he wants your prayers. And prayer itself is a supernatural miracle. It is cosmic. It's metaphysical. It's totally impossible if God is not willing to take on the burden of our separation from him onto himself. I'll say it to you this way. For you and I to communicate with God, it's like a wanted felon calling the Supreme Court to chat about how hard his day was and ask for some help with a few personal problems that he's having. It's like being on the run from the law and then showing up in a courtroom to see if the judge can maybe spare a $20 bill so you can get some gas and a hamburger. When we go to God in prayer, when we address him directly, we are, by being in his presence, bearing our guilt to him. And he is the judge of that guilt. He has to do something with us coming to him. We are wanted. It's our faces on the posters, on the walls, in the courtroom of eternity. We have wronged him. We are guilty. So who do we think we are to waltz into the courtroom where he sits and judges all things in all of time and expect him to care about whether or not we left the house a little bit late and we'd really like him to turn all the lights green on the way to work so that we're not late walking in the building. The magnitude of God's holiness versus the minuscule size of the prayers that we pray. But here's the paradigm for you and I as Christians. The solution is not to get rid of those small prayers. The solution is not to somehow make ourselves more formal or to only pray with these and thous in King James language, like the deacons at the church that I grew up at. The solution is to understand what can bridge this gap, because there is a gap. If God is intentionally relational, but he's also dangerously holy, something has to happen. There is a magnetism of him wanting relationship that draws me in, but there is a magnetism of him being dangerously holy that pushes me out. So where do I live in that tension? Who and what can solve this problem for me? Before we can arrive at a conclusion, I want to make sure you understand that God really does want to hear from you. And he wants to speak into your life as you pray. Three quick references. In Jeremiah 33, God says, call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Psalm 34, verses 15 through 18, tells us that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and he hears, his, excuse me, his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them. He hears them. He hears them. And he delivers them out of all their troubles because the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And then finally in 1 John, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. He is listening and he speaks. So what do we do with that? 
to hold both God's holiness and his desire to speak with you in your mind at the same time. Feels to me like a zookeeper at the zoo coming and grabbing me and saying, hey, one of those tigers that you just saw demolish an entire half of a cow at feeding time, it wants to tell you a secret. Would you climb in there with it? Get really close so you can hear its voice. At the same time, it's intriguing. It's something I wouldn't have expected, but also that's a tiger that can rip me in half with one of its claws. What business do I have in its presence? This is the tension that we feel as we approach God's throne. You remember what I told you when we started today, right? That I don't really want to talk to you about you. I meant that. So the answer to this problem can't be that you have to do something better than you have been. The answer to this problem can't be that you have to try harder than you've been trying or you have to let go of certain things or grab on to certain things. The answer can't be you taking an action. You can't bridge this divide. We need someone to help us. Someone who is enough like us to have compassion on us, yet who is also so essentially different that he can do what none of us can. So we'll finish in Ephesians 3. Paul says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we're talking about the church. We're talking about God's saved people. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that God realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ in whom we have boldness. We have access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the objective of Yahweh in Exodus 19. This is where we're headed. We're going to stop over at Mount Sinai. We're going to spend a few years in Canaan. There's going to be kings. There's going to be prophets. There will eventually be conquest. And then one day a Messiah will come. He will grow up. He will teach. We will murder him. And then by his death and resurrection, his life will no longer dwell near us. It will dwell in us. That's where we're headed. So that's what your 2022 should be about, church. You should not ask yourself if you could maybe be a couple of pants sizes smaller by the end of December 2022. You should not begin to ask yourself if you could make more money. You should be asking yourself, what is it about the limited finite days I have been given, the next 363 of them to be exact, that I can surrender to God in a way that the fullness of Christ would dwell in me? Because what we've settled for is a little bit of Christ. And I believe that's because we don't believe that God really wants to know us and we're not sure if he's powerful enough to be worth our time, but he is. He's intentionally relational. He's dangerously holy. And according to the Apostle Paul, the holiness of God compels us to know him because he uniquely has the power to do something about our problems. The resolutions that you and I make are things that God can complete in us. And if we walk in step with him, all of the legitimate problems that we have that are real and spiritual and eternal, they will be fixed. They will be solved as we go with God through our lives. The grace and mercy of Jesus 
motivated by a desire to communicate with you and relate with you is the way that we make contact with God and survive. God is intentionally relational and dangerously holy, and if you and I are in Christ, then we can have contact with God, the contact that we long for, if we're honest, the contact that we know he wants, and we can approach him with confidence because Jesus has consecrated us. We don't have to wait two days at the base of the mountain and wash our clothes and not have sex. Jesus can fix what is wrong inside of us so that we can approach God with full confidence. He has cleansed us. And so if it's not too late, and if I've not already poked holes in all of your resolution making to the point that you'll never do it again or at least never tell me, here's what I recommend that you resolve in 2022. That 2022 would be the year that you know God, that you know him. Make that your daily goal. Give him the year. Surrender the image you have of yourself in your mind at the end of 2022 into God's hands totally. Let it become a question mark. Instead of you having a set plan that gets you where you want to be in 12 months, give yourself to God and then let's find out together what he'll do with you. Ask him to shape you, to change you, to draw you in, to carry you along, to uphold your life. Ask him to do that every day. The moment that we share right now is our moment at the bottom of the mountain with Israel. We have been brought near, but now by the blood of Jesus, we can walk with Moses to the top of the mountain. We don't have to stay down here. We can experience God personally and powerfully. Father, Son, and Spirit, resolve with me, church, that 2022 would be about the word of God, written in the Bible and lived out by Jesus, about God's will, discerned in your prayers, in your study, in your meditation, Make 2022 about practicing an eternal kind of life by following Jesus. He's the only way that you and I can have God, holy and relational. It's my prayer for you, and I'd like to pray it now, if you'd pray with me. Thank you. Father, we love you. That's why we're here. We have, in some sense, God committed ourselves to you. I think many of us have given most, if not all, of our life to you, at least in theory. But every day is the litmus test for whether that's real or not. And so I pray, God, that you would take away the guilt that may motivate us, the guilt that probably motivates us into all kinds of self-help ideas. And instead, God, it would be the mercy of Jesus that draws us in. It wouldn't be the repulsion that we feel from the fear that we have about what might go wrong if we aren't good enough, God, but that we would be drawn in to your orbit by the magnetism, the gravity of love, your kindness that leads us to repentance. So that's my simple prayer, God, that we would be repentant, that we would in some way live differently and look into the next year differently, that we would be marked by salvation, that we would be marked by love and by grace and by mercy, and that we would not be different because we tried hard and achieved something, but we would be different, God, because we gave up We waved the white flag and surrendered ourselves to you totally. May that be our legacy, God. We love you. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you be with us this year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.